0: Uh, Thank you so much for joining um, us, joining me, and uh, thank you for your flexibility and and patience as I get used to this and get used to this new form of technology. But I'm going to trust that the power of God's word is going to cut through all of that this morning and is really going to touch you and make a difference in your life this morning. But what I'd like to do is uh, start out by reading from Psalm 99, Psalm 99, to start out our time together this morning. And the word of God says this. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earthquake, the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them, and they kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy." Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you that there are others that are gathering online right now, eager to hear a word from God, eager to hear a word from you. And I thank you that we do have this kind of technology available so that we can at the same time come to your word and hear you speak to us collectively as a church family. Father, I do pray this morning that you would uh, cut through the awkwardness of this format, of this way of doing things, and that the power of your word would, 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 would speak and would bless and would encourage and would equip. Father, I pray for anybody who might be joining us this morning who is not a Christian, Uh, who's not a believer, but but for whatever reason, they're here with us this morning. Father, I pray that the word might speak to those souls as well, that believers might be equipped and encouraged and drawn closer to you, and that any unbelievers who might join us this morning would, for the first time, see you in your glory and would savor you and would come to you for salvation. We ask you these things in the strong name of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and take them and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, we're in Ephesians chapter four, as we continue our sermon series through this great book called Identity Matters, as we continue to learn about the true identity, the true nature of a Christian. Um, John Bunyan, in the Allegory Pilgrim's Progress, so vividly illustrates the striking difference between the believer and the unbeliever and the difficult things that might arise from that difference. And in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, you have uh, two characters, Christian, who's the main character, and his companion, Faithful. And they are on their way to the celestial city, which represents heaven. And they had to pass through a town called Vanity Fair. And it was a fair. And it lasted all year long. Every single day the fair was going on. And Bunyan writes that at this fair are always to be seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, fakes, knaves, and rogues of every kind. Here also are to be seen without cost, thefts, murders, adulteries, and liars. And Bunyan writes that as they entered the fair, all the people in the fair were perplexed and the town was in a hubbub for several reasons. First, the pilgrims were clothed differently from any who traded in that fair. Uh, He writes that the people of the fair therefore stared at them. Some said that they were fools. Some said that they were deranged and some said they were eccentric men. Secondly, Bunyan writes, uh, just as they wondered at their apparel, so they likewise were bewildered at their speech for few could understand what they said. Uh, thirdly, uh, that which greatly disturbed the peddlers was that these pilgrims did not value their wares. They did not desire so much as to look upon them. So, so basically, the uh, the people of Vanity Fair were in an uproar over Christian and faithful. Why? Because they were so different than everyone else, and they wouldn't participate in all of the things that they were doing. And And so Christian and faithful end up being beaten and seized and thrown into a prison and tried and faithful ends up being executed. Now, Bunyan here teaches a really hard truth that may be challenging for some of us to receive because because we all have this impulse to one degree or another to wanna fit in, to wanna blend in, to be like everybody else because we wanna be accepted by everyone else. We want people to like us. Uh, We don't want people to think that we are weird or strange, and yet, Scripture constantly seeks to disabuse us of that notion by constantly reminding us that, actually, if you're really a Christian, and you're living as a Christian should be living, guess what? You're going to be different. You're going to be strange. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb in the crowd. And the irony about our desire, our desperate desire to fit in with the world, is that Paul has already shown us in Ephesians chapter 2 that fitting in with the world was actually part of the problem. Uh, At one time, the Christian was like everybody else. Uh, We were like the world. And where did that get us? Paul says, dead in your sins, slaves to your own passions and desires, slaves to the devil, uh, headed for God's just judgment towards you for rebellion against God in hell forever. That was what you were before you were a Christian, when you were fitting into the world, when you were like everyone else in the world. But if you're a Christian, what the Bible is telling you is that that's not you anymore. God has saved you from a life and a destiny that was awful, and he's transformed that life into something that's totally different. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul underscores the difference between Christians and non-Christians by using a clothing metaphor. He's going to talk about putting on and putting off, Uh, like you're exchanging an old set of clothes that aren't appropriate for the occasion, for something that's very different and brand new that's right and good and appropriate for the occasion. It's a vivid metaphor, and it underscores one of Paul's main points. Now, the Christian is to be something that's very different from what he or she wants was, very different than everyone else in the world. And the challenge that Paul lays before us uh, this morning uh, is, is essentially, are you going to keep hanging on and looking back to the past, wearing the old clothes, the old lifestyles of the past, looking like everybody else, or are you gonna move forward and totally embrace who you are and embrace and experience everything that God has for you in this new life? So now let's take a look at God's word and let's receive um, encouragement and comfort and a challenge. We're in Ephesians chapter four, and we're gonna focus on verses 20 through 24, but for context, let's go ahead and back up and uh, and remember what we read last week. Let's back up to verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness. And holiness. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for your holy and inspired Word. Uh, thank you for the message that you have for us this morning, Father. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and may our hearts be encouraged, and may our hearts be blessed, and may our hearts be challenged and convicted, and may you bring about uh, uh, just uh, uh, transformation uh, through your Word, and 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 may it sink deep into our hearts to the point that it actually affects our lives. May you help us to apply this word that we hear. And would you help me, Father, as I share and teach this word? Father, help me to teach it rightly. Help me to teach it accurately, Father. Uh, if, if there are things uh, that, that I have prepared that are, uh, are not faithful to the text, Father, strike those things uh, uh, from my from my mind. And, uh, and 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 Father, if there are new things that I need to share in regards to this word, that I, that I haven't even been prepared to say, Father, would you guide me in that direction? At the end of the day, I want to be a faithful servant and a faithful preacher of your word. And I know that that my friends who are listening this morning want to be faithful listeners of your word as well. So, Father, speak to us this morning, in this moment, in Jesus' name, amen. Charles Spurgeon recounted a conversation he was having with, uh, where, where somebody asked how it was that the church was not separate from the world as it used to be. And there was one person, and I guess he was more of an optimistic person. He suggested that possibly it was because the world had grown better. But Spurgeon recounted that someone else said that probably actually what's going on is that the church had grown worse. Uh, Spurgeon goes on to say that there are two ways of our coming together. The world may rise to our proper heights, or we may descend to the world's level. Uh, He said, I cannot help feeling that the difference between the church and the world has been mainly changed by the church coming down from what it used to be. And what Spurgeon said reflects a challenge that the church has always had. You know, Spurgeon said this in 1880. Uh, This isn't nothing new. This isn't a modern concern. Uh, The church, if it's not careful and vigilant and intentional about pressing into Christ more and more, will be in danger of drifting in the wrong direction. And godly men who lived long before Spurgeon would have expressed that exact same concern. In fact, in the first century, Paul, writing to one of the very first churches in existence, understands this danger. As he writes to these new believers, uh, he explains to them what they used to be, their old identity, he, he already done it, did it once in chapter two, but he's not letting this go. He takes them back again to what they once were, Uh, because your new identity as a Christian is best seen and understood against the backdrop of what you once were. And this is what we looked at last week in verses 17 through 19, which we could call the Gentile road. Paul says, you must no longer walk down that road. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And he goes on to describe the unbeliever as one who's futile in their thinking, hardened against God, chasing after everything except God for satisfaction, corrupt and wicked, Indulging in sinful desires is a pretty dark and depressing section, which is why when you get to verse 20, it's it's kind of a jolt, as suddenly his dark de- description takes a 180 and goes in the exact opposite direction, uh, as, as, as Paul now underscores for us. And this is my first observation this morning. This is my, my first point. You can scribble this one down if you're taking notes, and that is that a true Christian learns Christ. A true Christian learns Christ. Christ. Paul takes the Ephesians back to the very beginning of the Christian experience and look at what he says in verse 20. He says, that is not the way that you learned Christ. What's not the way you learned Christ? The the way of verses 17 through 19, the way of feudal thinking, the way of walking according to your own sinful desires and thinking, the way of self-determination, where you put yourself in the center of all things as you determine to be Lord of your own life. And Paul is saying, that's not the way that you became a Christian in the first place. Uh, The Ephesians did not learn Christ through continuing to fit in with the world, walking as the world walked, walking down those old, dark, worn out paths of sin and death. And this demonstrates that being a Christian is about life transformation, life transformation from day one of being a Christian, and that's critical because there is a, a false version of Christianity out there that says that you can become a Christian, you can learn Christ apart from repentance, apart from any change in your life. It doesn't matter how you live, uh, you don't need to look different than the world. Uh, some some even say that we shouldn't even call people to repentance. Uh, They would say, uh, that's works salvation. Didn't Paul in chapter two of Ephesians say that we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. And and, and so you can just accept Jesus into your heart and be saved. And at the same time, just willfully uh, keep walking down that Gentile road. And maybe later on, you know, when you're older, you can get more serious about following Christ. But they would say the most important thing is that you just accept Jesus into your heart. And, Uh, And all you have to do is is look at some professing Christians and some churches and see how they live and see the kinds of sins they tolerate, and you will know that this is true. Uh, Folks, we've come to the point where you've got Christians and churches and even denominations affirming the very things that Paul condemns in those prior verses, particularly verse 19, where he talks about sensuality and and impurity. There are churches today that not only tolerate such sins, but even applaud and affirm things like sexual immorality, uh, affirming homosexual lust and, and and transgenderism. And yes, it is true, and I will be the first to say it, and I will say it with joy and gladness. You are not saved by works. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But But yeah, we're saved, but saved from what? we're saved from from judgment yes and from an old lifestyle and an old way of living that was killing us what does paul say here he says that's not the way that you learn christ that that old way that you were living in implying that the very beginning of the christian life is marked by a decisive break from the old ways of living and thinking in fact think about this, the very essence of the gospel message includes a call to a sinful and rebellious world that's going its own way to turn around and go God's way. In fact, just read the gospel of Mark and you don't have to go very far. The very first command that we read coming out of the lips of Jesus in Mark chapter one is the command to repent. You see, God has a plan for you that is much bigger and much better than simply giving you spiritual fire insurance so so you don't have to go to hell while just leaving the same old you as the same old you. Uh, God is not only about saving you, he is about recreating you. And actually, that that recreative, regenerative work is part of what salvation is. Uh, God, God is not just saving you from hell, he's saving you from you from a way of life that leads you away from God, which means away from the ultimate source of peace and joy and satisfaction that you so desperately crave. You see, you think about this, God would be very cruel if all he did was save you from hell, but left you in slavery to sin forever running from God. Y'all, that would be a version of hell in and of itself. John Calvin rightly said that he whose life differs not from that of unbelievers, has learned nothing of Christ. For the knowledge of Christ cannot be separated from the mortification of the flesh." By, by the way, Paul's phrase, learned Christ, that's a really interesting expression. You can't find anything like that anywhere else in the New Testament. You can't find it in uh, any of the Greek literature of the ancient world. Uh, this, this was a, this is a brand new kind of uh, uh, expression. You, know, you think about learning something, you learn a particular subject, you learn information or mathematics or language or patterns of behavior. But interestingly enough, here, Paul points out that the object of our learning is not mere data, but a person. Because becoming a Christian is not just about agreeing to follow some rules, which is what so many people think Christianity is. Uh, many times I've asked someone if, if, if they're a Christian and they'll respond with, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I I try to do the right thing. You know, I try to go to church sometimes. And, and folks, that tells you right there that they are totally missing what a Christian is. The precepts of God are not in personal laws. They are connected to and flow from a personal being. And our obedience to Christ flows from a personal relationship with him. Which leads to my second point that you can write down, and that is that the true Christian listens to Christ. The true Christian listens to Christ. Now, this this could be a sub-point of my first point, because because it explains how the believer learns Christ. Look with me again at verse 20. Paul says, but that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, Paul's use of that word assuming doesn't express doubt. He's not doubting that they've heard. Uh, The Greek construction suggests actually the exact opposite, that he is certain that they actually have indeed heard. But what is it that they have heard? Uh, The ESV translation says that they have heard about Christ. But in the original Greek, that little word about actually is not there. A more literal word for word translation would say, assuming that you have heard him. Assuming that you've heard who? Christ. They they haven't merely heard about Christ. They've heard Christ himself. Now, now we we can ask, well, well, how in the world can that be? The church of Ephesus was not in Palestine, where where Jesus' earthly ministry was restricted to. They didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't hear the call Jesus gave in Mark 1 to repent. Uh, The church of Ephesus came into existence after Christ death, and resurrection, and ascension into heaven, and yet Paul is saying that these believers have heard Christ? And this isn't the first time that Paul talks in this way. Uh, you go back to Ephesians 2.17, Paul says to them, uh, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off, and he preached peace to those who were near. So so now are we to understand that the, the resurrected, glorified Jesus actually descended back to earth, walked the streets of Ephesus, and, and preach the gospel to the Ephesians? I, no, that's not the point. What we see here instead, I think, is a reminder that wherever the word of God is preached, the voice of Jesus is heard. As I heard somebody uh, say once, the, the mouth of God is the word of God. People all the time like to say, I have a word from God for you. Right. You hear, you see TV preachers do this, right? And they'll, they'll, they'll be real serious. And they'll look at that camera. You know, I have a message from God for you. It's kind of creepy when they do that. But, but it, what do you do when, when somebody comes up to you maybe and says something like that? I've got a word from God for you. Well, if, if they say that and it's not followed by a quotation from this book, y'all don't bother listening to them. This right here is God's word for you and me. And and there's nothing that anyone has to say that is as important or as urgent than what God has already laid down in his word. You do not need new voices or new words from God because this word is sufficient. In the past, the author of Hebrews says, God spoke at various times in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And this book, from Genesis to Revelation, contains the revelation of his son. And to the degree that God's word is being accurately taught and preached is the degree that God is speaking. This, by the way, is is why I just don't come before you Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and just speak a lot of personal anecdotes and and tell you a lot of warm, fuzzy stories or or things like that. And Now, I think there's a good there's a place for, for sermon illustrations and even personal stories. And honestly, I think that's probably something I need to get better at doing. But I am uncomfortable uh, talking a lot about myself and, and certainly uh, in regards to pontificating on my opinions about anything. Uh, if you are a faithful member uh, of Harbin's Church, you gather, whether it is in this building during normal times or in your homes through the Internet during a pandemic, You gather with other brothers and sisters to hear a word from God. That's what you want. That's what you need. Who cares what Deemer Webb thinks? You need a word from the Lord. And that's why I focus so much of my time and why I've given so much of my life. I've given so much of it over to teaching people the Bible because I have nothing more valuable to offer you than God's word and to help you understand what he's saying through it. And so... Servants of God, at one time, were preaching God's word in Ephesus, and we know in um, in Acts sixteen, Apollos was doing that. Uh, in Acts nineteen, Paul was. There may have been others, and as that word was being taught, the Ephesians were hearing the voice of Jesus. They weren't just hearing a list of rules and regulations, which is which is what so many people think Christianity is. They weren't hearing. A list of dry, dead, impersonal religious laws and teaching. They, they were hearing the voice of a person of the living God, and they heard. And not only did they hear, but they really listened. They responded. Now, how, how do we know that? How do we know that the the, uh, the Ephesians responded? We know from the very first chapter of Ephesians, where Paul says that he is he gives thanks because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. They didn't reject the word. They received it. They placed their faith in Jesus. They believed what they heard because true Christians listen to Christ and then seek to shape their lives according to his words. Unlike the Gentiles in verses 17 through 19, who are hardened and callous towards God's word. One of the marks of a real Christian is his heart attitude towards God's word. Remember what Jesus said about this? He said, my sheep do what? What did he say his his sheep do? He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. And then what do they do? And they follow me. And of course, that imagery of sheep and, and shepherd was very familiar to Jesus's audience. If you've got a bunch of sheep in the same area, how did the shepherd know which were his? They all look the same. So, so, how, so how does he know? How does he gather his sheep? How, how could he separate his own from the other animals that didn't belong to him? Well, he, he spoke he said a word, and those sheep that belonged to him would hear his voice, they would recognize it, they would know, this is the shepherd whom I belong to, I will go and follow him. And so when those Ephesians heard the word of the gospel from Apollos and from Paul, they were hearing the voice of Jesus, the great shepherd. And because God had marked them out for his own, he opened their ears, and they heard, and they listened, and they believed the gospel, and they followed him. That's what Paul is essentially saying when he says that they've heard Jesus. And by the way, this this really describes what evangelism is, isn't it? When you go out to evangelize, you are going out to find sheep. And, 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 you're, and you're doing it by sharing the words of the shepherd. And so you can have the confidence that as you preach the gospel, those whom God is determined to save will sooner or later hear Jesus, and they will believe in Jesus, and they will come out of the world, and they will follow him. Paul says, you heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And this again underscores the personal nature of being a Christian. It's a reminder that the Ephesians haven't come to believe in a philosophy or a code of ethics or abstract religion. Instead, they've had a direct encounter with the person of Jesus, the one who was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, the one who grew up as a carpenter's apprentice in the home of Joseph of Nazareth, uh, the itinerant rabbi and preacher who walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem, who healed the sick, created food for the hungry, walked on water, was crucified, buried, raised, and ascended to glory by the Father's side. This Jesus, Christian brother and sister, is the one that you have heard. This is the one that you listen to, the one you have learned. And anyone who's truly encountered Jesus in such a profound way is forever changed and forever different. As one commentator so helpfully put it, learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. And This, this involves submitting to his rule of righteousness and responding to his summons to standards and values completely different from what we previously known. And this means that when God invades the life of a sinner and saves him, a profound, radical change happens to that individual. Doesn't mean that the Christian becomes perfect, that won't happen until heaven, but it does mean that as the believer listens to Christ and learns Christ, the trajectory of that Christian's life then is bending in a different direction than it once was. There is no such thing as an unchanged Christian or a Christian who has zero interest in changing, or a Christian who is 100% exactly like the Gentile world described in verses 17 through 19. Instead, the Christian is one who has learned Christ because he listens to Christ. And therefore, and this is my final point, the Christian lives for Christ. Look with me at, at uh, verse 22 here as he talks about how the Ephesians were taught, what they were taught when, when they came to Christ. Uh, they were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. So in verse 22, we, we come to that clothing metaphor, putting on, putting off. The Christian <clears throat> is to dress differently. Again, this is a metaphor here. Uh, his his the Christian's lifestyle is to be radically different than the Gentile way of life in verses 17 through 19. Paul's made it clear in Ephesians that God has already changed you, he's already given you a new identity, but now he's urging you to live in accordance with that identity, and why? What's God's purpose in all of this? The answer is in verse 24, where Paul says that we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I wonder if some of those words might sound a little familiar to you. Paul's words here are hearkening back to the book of Genesis, where our forefather Adam was created in the image and likeness of God with the purpose of reflecting the righteousness and holiness of God. But that divine image was defaced and distorted when Adam sinned against God. And so Adam lost that righteousness and holiness And since Adam was the head of the human race and our representative, consequently, all of his descendants uh, from the beginning down to you and me, all of us born in Adam's image and likeness were born without God's righteousness and holiness, making us by nature children of wrath, which is what Paul was talking about back in Ephesians 2. But God the Son, Jesus Christ came into the world and he becomes a man. And that is very important. He... He he comes as a man in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness, and Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. Unlike Adam, he consistently and perfectly bears the image of the Father. He was tempted like Adam, but didn't fall like Adam. Uh, Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. Consequently, while Adam found himself as a child of God's wrath because of his sin, Jesus found himself as a child of God's wrath because of our sin because his his purpose was to redeem Adam's wayward children, us. And he redeemed us, according to Ephesians 1, by his blood. So Jesus, the second Adam, came to be a representative of a new humanity, a new race. And, and so as our representative, his death paid the price that we deserve for sins. And as our representative, his righteous holy life counts as ours. J- just like all who are And just like all who are united in Adam through physical death share in that old, corrupt, sinful humanity with hell on the horizon, so all who are spiritually reborn are united to Jesus Christ through faith in him and share in the new, righteous, holy nature with a future home in heaven. We are transferred from the old humanity to the new one. Adam is the head of the old order, the old creation. Jesus is the head of the new order, the new creation, the recreation. And and since our sin debt has been paid, God now can look favorably upon his people. And instead of doing them great wrath, he does them great good. He comes into our life and regenerates us. He begins to change us. And that righteous and holy likeness of God that was lost in Adam is progressively, bit by bit, being restored to us by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. I love how Paul puts it in uh first Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49. Paul says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Of course, the, the man of dust is Adam, the, the man of heaven is Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Praise God for that. Now, later on in chapter 4, in verses 25 through 32, Paul is going to give us some very practical examples of what new creation life looks like. But let me make it clear that you can't get to verses 25 through through 32 without first going through verses 21 through 24. This is really important, especially people who want just, you know, checklist and and do's and don'ts and, and, you know, real practical stuff. But, but again, you can't, you can't get to verses 25 through 32 without going through verses 21 through 24. You can't live out the new creation life without being a new creation, without being a new person, without being born again. So if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, your biggest takeaway from this message is that you need to be born again. You need Christ. You need to trust in him and his sacrifice on the cross for sin so that you can be saved and so that you can experience the new life that God has for his people. Otherwise, you may manage to appear to outwardly conform to some biblical standards for a while, but becoming a a, a new man actually starts with a, a change of heart. Inwardly, if you if you instead start with a, a, a try trying to change your outward behavior, it's going to fail in the end. It, man, I, I tried this so many times before I became a Christian because I I knew how I was living was wrong and I didn't want to live that way anymore. And 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 well well, part of me did. I think that's why I kept going back to that old way, back to the Gentile way. And I, and I was trying to 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 live in a way uh, that pleases God in the power of the old creation didn't work Uh, hell will be full of religious people it's going to be heavily populated with religious people more religious people than non-religious people uh, because you can be very religious but very hardened towards god and wicked on the inside And, and and so that's something that you need to know if you are an unbeliever. But also, likewise, though, for you who are already born again, you who have already experienced the regenerative power of God in your life, you need to remember that the new creation life is an experience with you focusing primarily on external behavior while neglecting what's inside. That's not how you got saved, and it's not how you press forward to experience the benefits of your salvation. Instead, look at verse 23. Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That signifies a progressive inward change in here, on the inside, in the inner man, the inner being. That's very significant because what's in our hearts and minds ultimately affects our outward behavior. And that's why so so many times people just, they try to change All they're trying to do is is, is change outwardly, and they keep falling back into the same old things over and over again. They're they're neglecting the inner man. As believers, learning to live outwardly, we must... uh, Living outwardly uh, needs to begin inwardly uh, with the renewal of our minds. How we think affects everything. So you you just think about how you've been these past few days. have Have you behaved outwardly in some ways that uh, you're embarrassed about, that that are shameful, that that things that you need to repent of, that, that are sins. If you acted ugly towards your husband yesterday, if you acted ugly towards your wife yesterday, check your heart. Something's going on in here. If you're struggling with lust, check your heart. If you're paralyzed by fear and despair because of the coronavirus, you need to examine what's going on in your heart. Just don't focus on the outward behavior and try by willpower just to stop it. And that's how so many people try to approach change. I've got this sinful habit in my life. I just, just stop it. Just stop, stop, stop it. Stop doing it. Folks, there are actually things that are happening in here that need to be dealt with. And until those are dealt with, you're going to keep doing the same old things over and over and over again. Now, Ephesians chapter 4 is not the only place that talks about mind renewal. Um, Probably even a more popular verse about this, and some of you haven't memorized, is Romans 12, 2. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. Again, Paul says, You're not to be like everyone else. You're going to to be very different than the world. He says, don't be conformed. Be transformed. That's a command. It's a command. Yes, it's true that God is doing a work in us, and that ultimately it is his power that enables us to change, but that doesn't negate our personal responsibility in sanctification. There is a school of thought out there that says, you know what? Just... Just, just, just let go and let God, and, and he'll, take a, he'll, he'll take care of everything, and he'll change you. Now, while let go and let God might be helpful advice in some situations and circumstances, that advice is absolutely useless in regards to your personal growth and sanctification. A passive let go and let God approach to the Christian life is totally unbiblical. The Bible actually gives us the opposite picture of let go and let God. It gives us a picture of striving, of pressing forward. It gives us a picture of violent warfare. There there is a part we have to play in real change. Uh, Work out your salvation, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I, I love that verse because you, you see both of these things at play in the at the same time. It, uh, it is the will of God to to uh, to, to work in you. Uh, that that's that's what God is doing in you, but that doesn't mean that you don't work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and, and there, there's a responsibility that you have, and and. And mind renewal is ground zero in regards to your responsibility in growth and change. And the foundation for mind renewal is laid as you spend time reading, meditating on and filling your mind and your heart with this book. I don't know of a single Christian who is effectively living the Christian life, who is growing an increased victory over sin in their lives who at the same time neglects God's word, who never or rarely spends time in it. I can't tell you how many people over the years have, have come to me for counseling who are struggling with sin in their life. And and it's a reoccurring thing. They just can't seem to, to shake it. and. And I asked them about their personal time of filling their minds with the word of God through regular Bible reading and prayer so that their thinking will be transformed and renewed. And I can't tell you how many times such people give me a kind of a sheepish and embarrassed look. Well, I haven't been reading my Bible lately, but but, I just, but I, I'm just busy or, or I, I'm, just, I'm just not a, a morning person or I've just got these other things you know, going on in, in my life or it's just really hard, hard for me to read or but, or, or but, but, but nothing. Friend, to, to set aside the word of God. When you do that, you know what you just just done? You have removed the most important weapon for mind renewal that you could ever have in your spiritual armory. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed to God that he would sanctify his disciples. And how, and how, and how would that sanctification, how would that growth in holiness take place? He, he said, he said, sanctify them by the truth. And right after that, he said, Your word is truth. It is through the word that God works in our lives. In the book of Romans, we learn that it is through the word that faith is awakened. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. It is through faith that sin is defeated, and 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 the word continually awakens the faith in the believer. But but it won't if you're not in the word. And if you don't know the word, when we get to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. I'm really looking forward to that. And in that passage, Paul calls the word the sword of the spirit. If you're entering into battle without your sword, no wonder you're getting beat up by sin and the devil on a regular basis. If If this book contains the thoughts and mind of God, there is no better way for your mind and your thoughts to be changed and renewed than by getting the mind of God into your mind through this book. And if you're really entangled in a besetting sin that just won't go away, you may need to humble yourself and admit that you can't do this alone, but that you need a mature Christian brother or sister who is skilled in wielding the word, in wielding the sword of the spirit, who knows the word of God, who can help you through God's word, experience the renewal of the mind. And, and, and by the way, even during a global pandemic, maybe even especially during such a time, you need to continue to be about the business of renewing your mind. Don't waste your pandemic. Some of you have some extra time because of everything that's going on. Some of y'all have extra time at home, extra time with the kids. Don't waste that time. Use it by reading the Bible more than ever to yourself, to your kids, with your family. And your pastors, myself and Pastor Jared, we are more than happy to be among those who could come alongside you with God's word and help you experience a new level of freedom in your life through the power of his word. So, so, so that you look less and less like the world and, and more and more you're reflecting God's image. So message me, message Jared, uh, mes- message another mature believer that you know in, in this congregation. <clears throat> and we would be honored to walk this journey with you. Uh, and, and as you press deeper into the scriptures, you will find that the light of God's word will shine in the dark crevices of your heart and will expose those issues that are causing you to sin. And it'll it'll help you to, to root those things out and replace them with better things that will cause you to live differently. It'll help you <clears throat> to effectively obey Ephesians 4.22 and 24, to put off that old self. <clears throat> in the Greek, <clears throat> that's literally the old man and, and it's hard not to think of our connection with Adam when, when when you read that. And to put on the new self, which in the Greek is literally the new man. And there it's not hard to think of Christ. And in fact, in Paul in Galatians 3, actually talks about putting on Christ. A Christian is to remove the clothing of the old man from his life. The, the sinful desires, the sinful passions, uh, thinking in a way that is uninformed by the revelation of God's Word, selfishly going your own way instead of God's way, and instead to put on the new man, to put on the way of Christ. And of course, all this is a process. You will be putting on and putting off from now until the grave, or when Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, until then, you aren't perfect. Your heart isn't perfect, and there is still sin remaining in your heart, and that needs to be dealt with and removed there's still growth and purity and holiness that's needed because christianity is not simply a few moral rules to sprinkle into your life it's not self-help and self-improvement it's about the absolute destruction of the old self and the rising up of a new self a new person a new you with a totally new identity revolved around god submissive to his control and and his agenda it's about becoming who you really are and the more you do that the more the church does that, the less we'll fit in with the world, and the less we'll be like the world. And, and, and let's be honest, the less we will be liked by the world. Turn with me over to Ephesians, or First uh, Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4. <clears throat> and that's just going to be uh, a few books over. First Peter 4. And... Um, Look what he says at the beginning of the chapter there, uh, starting in verse one. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, the Gentile way, put that off, but for the will of God. Peter goes on to write, for, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So that sounds very similar to what Paul is saying, right? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Look at this, verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Wow. They malign you. They make fun of you. They attack you. Why? Because because you're not like the world. You're not like them. And they, they don't like it that you're not like them. They don't like it that you dress differently than them, that, you, that you, you put off their fashion and you put on something completely different. And so this drive that Christians, especially American Christians have to be accepted and, and thought well of by the world and be popular folks, we need to crucify that desire. Now, if you're still in in 1 Peter, turn back with me um, a couple chapters to verse 2. And there, in verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, notice that language. He's saying we don't fit in. We don't belong here. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, we're to live differently. Um, uh, we, we, we're to, we're to, he, he's saying put off those things, uh, the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, now, here's the put on part. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, think carefully about that. We, and it's interesting that both of those passages that we read are written by the same guy, just a couple of chapters apart. We're not just to dress differently for our own sakes. We are to be different for the sake of the Gentiles the same Gentiles that Paul speaks so candidly about in Ephesians 4. Yeah, those Gentiles, um, the ones who are few to one thinking, the ones who are darkened in understanding, hardened and callous, engaged in sensuality and impurity, the same Gentiles that we used to be a part of, and and those same Gentiles that will be shocked by your new clothing and will malign you for it, we need to remember uh, that, that the church isn't, in the world, to be accepted by the world. We're, we're in the world to benefit and bless the world. And we don't want to be the same as everybody else. Because if we're the same as everybody else, they aren't going to see our godly lives that are so different than what everyone else is doing. We're not going to stick out like a sore thumb in the culture, which means we'll also never stick out as a beacon, a, a light that is showing a culture uh, that is lost in darkness the way to God. So again. I say that we've got to crucify our desires to be accepted and applauded by the world, not just for our sakes, but for theirs. Yes, some will malign you, but also some might see God in us and come to him and be saved, which then gives God the glory. That's how Peter ends his exhortation. God is glorified. The, the, The Gentiles will glorify God, and ultimately that's what this is all about. In the in the going back to Pilgrim's Progress, in the wake of, of Christian and Faithful's horrific experience in Vanity Fair, there was someone who was watching them. And Bunyan writes this says, Now I saw in my dream there was one named Hopeful, being made so by beholding Christian and Faithful in their words and behaviors and sufferings at Vanity Fair, who joined with him. Entering into a brotherly covenant, Hopeful told Christian that he would be his companion. He also told Christian that there were many more from Vanity Fair who would be following after them. Thus, Bunyan writes, one died to bear testimony to the truth, while another rises out of his ashes to be a companion with Christian in in his pilgrimage. We are different. We will not be accepted. We will be maligned. Many will reject us. Some will persecute us. Some may even kill us. But there are others who will see, who will see our words and our behaviors and our sufferings and how we navigate all of that in the power of the Holy Spirit, navigating it in a way that that is so different than how the world navigates their trials and tribulations. There will be some who will see and who will come to know God and will come to glorify him. Be different, dress differently for your sake, for the sake of the world and for the glory of God. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. And by the way, during this pandemic, this is a great time to demonstrate to others how different we are, because we have a different hope. And we've been renewed we have a new identity. It's not. It's not rooted in. In, um, in the economy. It's not rooted in how physically strong and healthy we are. It's not rooted in whether or not our routines and our lives go the, the, the way that we prefer them to go. It's rooted and anchored, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are His. So let us live as we are His. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these wonderful verses in the book of Ephesians. And I pray that your word that has been preached would not return void, and that people have heard Christ this morning. And I pray that you would help us to live according to what we have heard. I pray that those who are here tuning in, that are believers, that we would experience greater and greater renewal of our minds as we seek you in your word, as we pray to you, as we lean on one another and stir up one another to love and good works. And I pray for anyone who is listening that is not a believer, that they might be born again right now, right now, in this instance, be changed, be transformed, that they might experience everything that you have in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.